Children can be dismissed. How are we doing out there today? Amen. You look good. So we're in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. This mic is really loud up here. How is it out there? I'm starting to scare myself. So we're in part two of our series on pleasing the Lord. We spent time in the book of Revelation in our series on repentance. We looked at five churches that Jesus called to repentance, and we noted that there were two churches that didn't get asked to repent. Now, I think it's important that we figure out, you know, what gets us into trouble, and those five churches teach us the things that get us into trouble, losing our first love, becoming worldly, all of these things that we covered, but we also have to look at the two churches that Jesus had no correction or criticism of to find out what pleases the Lord, because you and I need to know what pleases the Lord, amen? How many people, let me talk to the married people this morning, how many know what pleases your spouse? Amen. I know after 30 plus years of being married, I know what my wife loves and I know what annoys her. And unfortunately, I still do both. But that's part of loving someone is knowing what pleases them. You know, so many times I see guys, well, I don't know what my wife likes. Why not? Or I don't know what to get him for his birthday. Well, why not? If you love someone, you know what pleases them. So we've got to know what pleases the Lord. Smyrna and Philadelphia were two churches Jesus had no criticism of, and he has no call for them to repent. Smyrna was the persecuted church. They'd experienced suffering in many ways, including martyrdom and the stripping of all their worldly possessions because they refused to worship Caesar, and we covered that. So because they refused idolatry, they suffered in this life, and Jesus says, I have no correction of you. Philadelphia, we're going to unpack that at some point, but they were the favored church, and there again, they pleased the Lord in many ways, and we need to explore that. So last week we covered three things about Smyrna, and I'm going to recap in just a minute. Let me read to you Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8, clear through verse 11 today. And the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander by those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Now, there's a lot in those two verses, verse 10 and 11, that Jesus uh, is saying to them, a lot of implications there. Last time we were together, when we looked at verse 9, Jesus said he knew three things about them, their tribulation, their poverty, and that they endured slander. As a Christian, there are times when we have trouble. Anybody have experienced any trouble? How, how about this week? How about this morning? You know, sometimes the greatest trouble is on your way to church. That's why my wife and I take separate cars. It's the key to a happy marriage. Amen. Separate cars. 
No, I mean, I, I used to hear about people, they fight on the way to church. We never did that, but I'm just saying, you know, trouble, it, it happens, tribulation. These guys had trouble and poverty because they refused to worship Caesar. In the Roman Empire, in every colony of the Roman Empire, there were altars that had a bowl of uh, incense, and you would have to take a pinch of this stuff and throw it in there and say, Hail Caesar, and that was your worship that was due Caesar. If you didn't do that, they persecuted you. And so because Smyrna worshiped only Jesus, then that church said, we're not bowing down to idolatry. They lost their possessions. The Romans came in and seized their businesses, their homes, their material possessions, and they had poverty. And on top of it, they were slandered by the religious Jews there that were apostate. I'm not saying the Jews or all the synagogues. Jesus points to a group of them because they were religious, but they were lost. And they didn't follow the Old Testament or the, you know, the covenant of Moses, or they didn't follow the commandments. They were just about religion, and they hated the Christians, and they lied about them constantly. You know, in Rome, the Christians were blamed for everything. If there was a, a flood, it was the Christians' fault. If there was no rain, it was the Christians' fault. They took Christians and used them to light the Colosseums with them, and, and they fed them to lions, and they persecuted them. And so if you think it's tough to be a Christian in America today, I just want to say to you with all gentleness, you're soft. A lot of people who went before us suffered in ways and Smyrna did. So Jesus knew things about them and he affirms them. Now let's take a look at verse 10 and 11 of this chapter. And as we continue here, Smyrna is warned of what lies ahead of them. Jesus says to them, verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Now, in this text here, Jesus, as always, is brutally honest with the children of God. He tells them what things they're about to suffer, and he actually lists some specifics. Now, I want you to notice Jesus doesn't say, here's how to hide from the suffering. Here's how to run from it. You know, here's how you can escape or avoid suffering. No, he doesn't tell them to do any of those things. He tells them not to be afraid of it. Now, I don't know about you, but... Telling a person who's afraid not to be afraid seems like an exercise in futility. Most of us know if a person's paralyzed with fear uh, and, and they're afraid, telling them not to be afraid is like telling a really angry person to calm down. How good does that work? You get your spouse all lathered up in an argument and they're angry and you just look at them and go, I wish you would calm down. All the married people look scared. All the single people are going, ah. But I know when my wife's really angry and I've made her angry, I don't say that. I've never said that. I throw chocolate at her. I show her pictures of the beach. You know, these are the things that work. But you don't say to a mad person, calm down. And you don't say to a, a person who's paralyzed with fear, you know, don't be afraid. Seems like, you know, it wouldn't work. You know, you think about that little kid standing on the edge of the pool and you're trying to teach them to jump in. And they're standing there scared and they're shaking and you see them like this. I've seen so many kids, you know, and the dads are like, come on, trust me, come on. And no, because they're scared. Many times in our spiritual walk, God's in the pool and he's come, come on in. You're going to love it. The water's good. Come on into the flow of what the Holy Ghost is doing. Come on in. And we're standing at the edge scared. He doesn't tell them how to avoid what they're about to suffer. He tells them not to be afraid of it. Now, 
this forces us to look into this idea of fear. And there's three things I want you to know about fear today. Number one, I want you to know the true nature of fear. Fear is not just an emotional response. Fear is not just an intellectual response. Fear is a spirit. See, the Bible says God has not given us a spirit of fear. There are times where fear can grip a group of people or a a country or, you know, uh, uh, whatever, that it's almost tangible that you can see what fear does. A nation in the midst of war, a nation in the midst of uh, crisis or natural disaster. You've seen pictures in magazines time of just people's faces with abject fear on them to the point where it's tangible. Fear is not just an emotion. Fear is a spirit, and that's what the Bible clues us into. You and I have not been given the spirit of fear. We've been given the spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. That's what Scripture says. So when I'm afraid, that means I'm in a spirit that I, I really haven't been given by God. And understand something. The nature of fear is to terrorize and to paralyze. Many of us have been afraid of things to the point where we're paralyzed by that fear and we don't dare take a step towards the things God's calling us to. So understand, the nature of fear is that it is a spirit. It is not from God. It's not just an emotion. It's bigger than that. There's more than that behind it. And I want to say one last thing about this point. Every one of us who believes in Jesus Christ can face and overcome our fears. Amen? Dr. E. Stanley Jones said this. He said, I am inwardly fashioned for faith. Think about all the songs we sang this morning about faith and knocking the giants down and how to use praise as a weapon. Come on, when I hear the worship songs that the Holy Spirit chose and I see that they go right along with the message I'm preaching, I know that God is in in charge, amen? But, you know, Dr. E. Stanley said, I'm inwardly fashioned for faith, not fear. Fear is not my native land, faith is. I am also so made that worry and anxiety are sand in the machinery of my life, and faith is the oil. I want you to get that image in your head. Fear puts sand in the machinery, and faith is oil. Listen to me. You're going to perform better in faith than you are in fear. Did you know that people who worry, people who give into fear, die sooner than people who don't? It's the statistical fact. A Johns Hopkins University doctor said, we don't know why warriors die sooner than non-warriors. We just know that statistically it is a fact. He, he says, I being a simple man think I know the answer. We were created for faith, not fear. God made us this way. To live in worry is to live against our own internal design. When you and I allow fear to control our lives, we are living contrary to the image God created us in. God in heaven is not afraid of anything or anyone or any situation or any choice that we make. We created in his image. We're created for faith and not fear. So that's the nature of fear. Let's talk about where fear gets its power The main thing God wants us to know about fear today is that it only has power over us if we let it. Now, when I say that, it almost bounces off because you think, no, I've been afraid before and I wasn't making the choice to be afraid. I was just afraid. Well, the truth is at some point we did make a choice to be afraid. 
we allow the implication of what was in front of us conjure up some things in our mind and, and create these images that we thought this is going to happen and that's going to happen and we chose to be afraid. Now, sometimes our first reflex is fear when something happens. Look, if you, know, I, if you walk out to your driveway tonight and I jump out of the bushes with a ski mask and a, and a lead pipe, you might be afraid. You won't go, Pastor, you're so silly. No, you're going to be afraid. That's our knee-jerk reflexive action. So fear gets its power uh, in the fact that you and I choose to be afraid. You say, well, how do you know that? There's many places in Scripture, but let's just look at our text, the first three words of verse 10. Do not fear. Now, some of you might have missed that, but Jesus is telling them, do not fear, which means we get a vote, which means we get a choice. Come on, are you buying what I'm selling this morning? If he says, do not fear, then implicit in that means that we get a choice whether we're going to be afraid or not. We, we might get scared initially, ah, but then we're going we're to grab our balance and our faith is going to kick in and we're going to release our faith, that fear, and drive it out before it takes a grip on our hearts, amen? There's nothing wrong with being scared initially, but when we allow fear to come in and take a grip on our lives, then that's wrong. Because fear only has power over us if we allow it to. He says, you know, do not fear. That means I get a vote, I get a choice, and I choose not to accept the spirit of fear, but I choose to receive the power, the love, and the sound mind that God purchased for me, amen? You know, once we're not afraid of something anymore, all its power is gone. Think about, you know, children are afraid of a lot of things. When, when, when we're little, we're afraid of stuff like we're afraid of the dark. How many people were afraid of the dark? A lot of liars out there. We're afraid. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, how many people were positive there was someone under your bed and someone in your closet? Come on. You know, you could hear them breathing in there. I could hear them. You know, we used to watch these monster movies when we were kids, man. And there were times, Pastor Mike, I knew the werewolf was in my closet. He was in there. And we're, and we're afraid of things. I remember, you know, calling my parents, Mom, Dad, I'm afraid. And they would come in and see you quivering in there and say, shut up and go to sleep. No. <laughs> you know, your parents have had it with you, and now there's this thing. And the, and the thing is, it's, it's that... You know, and we're young and we're immature and our imaginations run wild and we, we choose to be afraid of things that aren't even real. There's no vampires, werewolves. Frankenstein is not under your bed. When I was a child, you're going to laugh at this. First service thought it was hilarious. I was afraid of fuzz. Fuzz. F-U-Z-Z, -Z, fuzz. My parents had a big green shag carpet in the apartment we lived in the Bronx and these balls of fuzz would come up on the carpet and my dad being a dad would take the fuzz and chase me around with it I ah, was scared of fuzz I don't understand as I got older I was no longer scared of fuzz if my mom pulls a big thing of fuzz out of her purse right now I'm not scared why? Because when we grow up and we become mature, those irrational fears disappear. And once they're broken, they have no more power over us. So understand, it's our immaturity sometimes that makes us afraid, but spiritually we need to grow up and know that if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is with us, what do we have to be afraid of? Amen. 
We've got to learn the difference between real and pretend. In fact, that's what child experts say to teach children to break fears in them. All, all the leading experts, you've got to teach a child between the difference between what's real and what's pretend. And spiritually, some of us haven't learned that yet. And we're still afraid of a devil who's a defeated, broken foe. foe. Amen. We're still afraid of the darkness when it has no dominion over us. So the true nature of fear and where fear gets its power, let's say one more thing about fear this morning. Fear is our enemy's favorite weapon. You know, some people get uncomfortable when you mention the devil, but Jesus talked about the devil and he talked about hell more than he did about heaven. Because we do have a spiritual enemy. He's not a guy in a red leotard with a pitchfork. But he's that voice in your head that puts doubt and unbelief and fear in you. Amen? It's not just your conscience. There are spiritual forces at work in the world that we live in. And our enemy loves to use fear as a weapon. Look what it says here in the text. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Now listen to this. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Let's just stop there. I want you to just focus on the first part. Behold, the devil is about to. You see, the enemy loves to make us afraid of what he's about to do. How many times have been, we've imagined this is going to happen, that's going to happen. I'm going to get sick. I'm going to get cancer. I'm going to get in a car accident. I'm going to lose my spouse. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. Where's that coming from? The enemy loves to use fear as a weapon to make us afraid of what he's about to do. Our enemy can't do anything to us without God's permission. Let me say that one more time. Our enemy can't do anything to us without God's permission. You are a child of God. You belong to God. You're covered by the blood of Jesus. Amen. There is a hedge of protection over your life that the enemy can't get through. Amen. And understand something. Anytime something visits our life or touches us or we go through something, you know, and we say, well, why did God allow that? Listen, he's going to use it to perfect us. You remember in scripture when the enemy came to sift Job. You remember what happened with Job? The enemy had to come into God's presence and ask permission to touch Job. Those of you who know the story, he came in and the enemy was coming in and and, and making accusations about Job. Why? Because the Bible says he's the accuser of the brethren. That day and night, he tries to tell God, look at this, they're hypocrites, they're doing this, they're choosing sin, they're not listening to you. He accuses you and I. And the Lord allows him to come into his presence and make accusations, but then the Lord defends us. And he told the enemy, all right, you can do this to Job, but you can't do that. You can touch this, but you can't touch that. Even in his permission to sift him, there are parameters. Why? Because everything that touches us passes through the divine hands of God. Now you say, well, some things I've been through I'm mad about, and I'm mad at God that he allowed that to touch me. It's not to destroy you. It's to perfect you. Learn to trust him, amen. Fear is your enemy's favorite weapon, but he can't use it. You know, he's about to do. Most of the time, what the enemy is about, you know, he's threatening about to do, he's either bluffing or lying. Do you know, statistically, it's a proven fact that what most people fear never happens in their lives. I'm afraid of this. I'm afraid of getting sick. I'm afraid of doing it. And it doesn't happen. But yet they're afraid of it. 
Why? Because our enemy likes to say, I'm about to do this. I'm about to do that. But he's lying or bluffing and whatever he can do, he has to get permission from God to touch us. And everything he does winds up working out for our good. Many of the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him up out of all of them. Amen. All things work together for the good of them who love God and are called according to their purpose. Listen, if you're going through something right now, it's not going to destroy you. It's going to perfect you. He's going to take you to the next place of promotion. He's going to bring you to the next place of blessing. Amen. Have faith in God. You say, how do you know that? Because I got 40 years of, of a track record of God never dropping the ball once. I've seen him come through every single time and never fail. And so have many of you. So we know the true nature of fear. We know where its power comes from and how to break it. We know it's our enemy's favorite weapon and that we're to, un we're to release faith and praise. Amen. You know, fear is just anti-faith. When we, when we give in to fear and let fear, you know, intimidate us, we're just saying, you know what, I believe in, you know, what this is going to do to me more than what, how God can keep me. While it's natural for us to fear suffering, he says to them, and he's blunt, do not fear what you are about to suffer. I mean, if you were getting that letter, wouldn't you be like, I'm going to deliver you from every suffering? But that's not what it says. It says, do not fear it. it. So it's natural to fear suffering. Nobody wakes up in the morning and go, man, I hope today is filled with a lot of suffering. <laughs> if you do that, you need, you need help. <laughs> no, we don't desire suffering. Even Jesus, when he, he saw the cross coming, he got alone with his disciples in the garden and he prayed. And what did he say? Father, if this cup can pass from me, let it pass. But if it can't, not my will, but your be done. See, Jesus feared the cross and the suffering and the shame of it. But he didn't allow fear to grip his life to the point where he refused to do the will of the Father. Did you ever face something you thought most definitely would destroy you only to find out God's grace allowed you to get through it unscathed? Come on, if you've been through that, clap your hands this morning. You were facing something. It was big. The judge said this. The doctor's report said this. Your boss said that. You know, and, and it wasn't a good report. But you thought, this is going to kill me. This is going to destroy me. This is it. Only to go through it by the grace of God, by the power of God, and not even smell like smoke when you come out the other side. You know, people listen to this and go, these Christians are crazy. You know what? But our God has proven himself in our lives over and over again to the point where, hey, if I'm crazy, let me be because I'm at peace with, you know, trusting in God that maybe you can't see or maybe you can't feel, but he's real to me and he's come through every time. Fear stops us from factoring in the faithfulness of God into the equation. See, when you're afraid, you can't think, man, God's come through every time. You can, when you're afraid, you can't think, you know, God will make a way where there is no way. When you're afraid, you can't even factor in how God would possibly get you through this. The children of Israel stood before the Red Sea, and they thought, this is it. Here comes Pharaoh's army. They're armed. They're going to kill every single one of us. And God parted the Red Sea, amen. God makes a way where there is no way for those who trust in him, amen. The first persecution 
Jesus warns them of is that they'll be thrown into prison. Listen to this. Do not fear, so we get a choice, about you, you know, what you're about to suffer, so he's going to get us through. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Let's just stop there. You know, it's kind of interesting. Usually the Lord doesn't tell us what we're going to go through. How many are glad the Lord doesn't tell us sometimes what we're going to go through? Amen. You know, if 10 years ago the Lord said, the next 10 years you're going to go through X, Y, and Z, and blah, 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 we, some of us would have tapped out right then. Well, I'm, I'm out. I'm out. Thanks, Jesus. Uh, you, it was good. It was fun. But I'm out. You know, and I think about, you know, what it took for me to get from a teenager to where I am right now. You know, I, I would have been like wishing for sweet death a long time ago. You know, and you and I don't see the big picture sometimes, and that's for our own benefit. But in this case, he tells them, you, some of you are about to go to prison. Some of you, you're going to be tested, and, you know, uh, you're going to go through it for 10 days. And the first thing I want you to see here is that he's honest with them, and he gives them both a reason and a duration for their suffering. The first reason is this. It's a test. He says, so that you will be tested. Now, God doesn't tempt us, but he sure does test us. I, I want you to know the scripture says that God doesn't tempt us. God doesn't put sinful things in front of us. God doesn't put sins of the flesh in front. He doesn't tempt us morally or sexually. No, God doesn't tempt us, but he sure does test us. And, you know, many of us, you know, we don't like to be tested, how many people's favorite part of school were tests? No, it was lunch and gym, right? Come on, lunch and gym. Hey, Amen. Not test. It was hanging out with your friends. It was having fun. It was cutting up. It was laughing, but it wasn't tests. I remember when we were in Bible college, Pastor Mike and I, we would stay up all night long. We would drink espresso. I mean, the coffee was so thick, two cups, and you can see into the future. And, you know, we're, we're, we're studying. We're studying all our notes. And what notes do you have? And, what no and, and we're studying. Why? Because there was a test in the morning. And I'll tell you what, I don't miss tests at all. You know, some of us, when we graduated high school, college, whatever, the happy thing of the day was, I don't have to take tests anymore. But God does test us, whether we like it or not. There's going to be tests. And you say, why does he do that? James 1, 2 through 4 tells us why. Paul speaking, I mean, James speaking here, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing, listen, that the testing of your faith produces patience. Let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Testing works in patience in us, and patience perfects our character. We don't like the test, but God loves us enough to save us the way we are, but he loves us so much he won't leave us that way. So I need to be tested. Why? So I increase my character, so I get the bad habits out, so I look more like Jesus than I do Rick at the end of the drill. Amen? Testing is necessary. We come unglued sometimes when our faith is tested. Because we falsely believe the lie that the test was sent to destroy us when it's only there to perfect us. The test is not to destroy, it's to perfect. 
So if you're going through a test today, if your faith is being tested, if you don't know how you're going to make it, if you're at the Red Sea and you don't know what God's going to do, trust him, have confidence in him, rest in him, and know that he didn't send the test to destroy you, but he's going to perfect you through the test. Come on. So... It's a test. It tells us the reason for the suffering. And it also, Jesus also tells those in Smyrna the duration. He says, you will have tribulation for 10 days. Say 10 days. You know, most of us think we can endure 10 days of anything. The answer was yes, Pastor Mike. Well, yeah. You were here first service. Come on, work with me. You know, most of us think, you know, I can go through 10 days of being sick. How many had the flu for 10 days, right? You made it, right? You pulled through. You know, I can endure 10 days. You know, some of us, you know, uh, 10 days in jail, I could do that standing on my head. Come on, where's all my felons out there? 10-day visit from my mother-in-law, been there, gone through it. We think 10 days, big deal. 10 days is no big deal. I, I don't want to burst your bubble, but almost all scholars agree that this is not a literal 10-day period. That Smyrna went through suffering and persecution from Rome, and it was a lot more than 10 literal days. But the point is this. He's giving a duration, and when something has a duration, that means it has a beginning and an end, Lou. And if there's an end, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, and we can hold on by his grace until we get to the end. Amen? There's a beginning and the, an end of our trials. There's a beginning and the end of our suffering. It's not going to be forever. The enemy tells you it's going to be forever. It's going to get worse. You're never going to be free. He lies to us, amen? But there's a beginning and an end to our trials. The Bible says things come to pass. And I want you to remember this. They come to pass. They don't come to stay. You know, when we think there's no end to the trouble, to the trial, to the drama, that makes us quit. You know, they did a study with people and they told them, you know, hang on to this. They, they had to hang on to this like bar that was across the water. And they told one group of people, you only have to hang on for two minutes. And if you do, you get a good reward. Don't let go. And they told another group, you have to hang on indefinitely. There's no ending point, uh, you know. And so the group that, you know, was told two minutes, they hang on way longer. The group that was told no end in sight, they dropped before the two minutes. Why? Because the human spirit, when it has no hope, quits. But you and I have a hope in the Lord. He said the duration is just for a short time. It's just 10 days. You can make it. Trust me. Have faith in me. My grace is sufficient for you. Come on. It's not forever. It's not forever. What you're going through today is not forever. The enemy always tells us it's forever. And you know what? I, I've been through some stuff, and I know the enemy says it's forever, and it's going to get worse. The dread of things being too much to handle, and it's going to get worse, that makes us quit. But that's a lie. That's not the word of the Lord. He told those in Smyrna it was a test not to destroy them but to perfect them he told them it was a certain duration of time so his grace would be sufficient for them that they can endure it that they can make it that he believed in them the last part of verse 10 is counsel to us and it's a little bit sobering it says here what the enemy's about to throw some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you'll have tribulation 10 days then. Here's Jesus' counsel. 
be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, most Christians don't accept Christ and come into the family of God and think, you know, my way out is martyrdom. How many of you, when you got saved, you thought, I'm going to serve Jesus till the day they kill me? It's not like marriage, till death do you part. <laughs> but, you know, we don't come to Christ thinking, well, my, I'm certainly going to be martyred at the end of this. That's how I'm going out. But Jesus tells them, some of you are getting thrown in prison, and the only way out is that, you know, you need to be faithful unto death. There's an amazing reward attached to that faithfulness there, and he says, I'll give you a crown of life. Now, for those who are called to remain faithful under hardship, under trial, and for those who are called to be martyrs for the faith, I want you to understand something. None of us could handle that in our own strength. But if God has called us to do it, he'll give us the grace to endure it till the very end. Amen. Why? Because he's going to glorify himself in that. And if that's what it costs to serve God, if it costs our life, that's an honor to lay down our life for the one who laid down his life for us. And there's an awesome reward. I will give you the crown of life. Now, all of us receive the free gift of eternal life, but the crown of life is something a little different. It's an emblem. It's a symbol so that everyone can see. Look, people who wear crowns, people notice. Go to, go to the store and buy yourself a tiara today, ladies, and walk around and go like this. People will notice. We're going to have a crown to present to the Lord, to offer, to throw at his feet. We're going to have a crown to, 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 to be a note for all eternity that we were faithful unto death. What a privilege. Some of you are looking at me like, let somebody else have that privilege. And it's up to God. But he promises them, it's going to cost some of you your lives. And they were martyred by Rome, and they were killed in Smyrna. And the crown of life is theirs for all eternity as a reward. Verse 11 here, we're going to bring it in for a landing. Verse 11 contains both a plea and a promise. Listen to this. The one who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Let's just unpack 11 as we bring this in for a landing. The plea is this. It's a familiar plea from Jesus for his, peer, his people, what? To stay spiritually sharp. Look at, he says, the one who has an ear. Anybody have ears today? Anybody hear me today? The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. What Jesus is calling for is his children to stay spiritually sharp, to be those who hear. How many know there's a difference between being sharp and being dull? And if you, if you see a sharp person, maybe you've been in the presence of somebody and intellectually they're, they're very they're intelligent and you pick it up, you can tell that they're sharp. Maybe you're around an old person, they're in their 90s and still mentally, what do we say? They're very, yeah. So like you can tell when someone's sharp and now how many have been around some dull people that weren't very sharp? Come on, all the dull people are going. But you can tell like when someone's not all there, when they, you know, you know, you know, you said that people say, are you with me? If people ever walk up to you and put a mirror in front of you to see if it fogs up. It's a tough crowd this morning, Tony. But you know, we can tell the difference between sharp and dull. 
And God is saying, I don't want you to become dull. Why? In Scripture, he says, these people have become dull of hearing. With their eyes, they don't see. With their ears, they don't hear. At least they would repent and I would restore. Right? So he doesn't want us spiritually dull. He wants us spiritually sharp. Look, there's only one way to stay spiritually sharp. We've got to stay in the Word of God. We've got to stay on our knees and pray. We've got to stay in church and under the anointing of the Word of God. Amen? If you're doing those three things, God will keep you sharp. But if we refuse to do those things, the best of us will get dull. And Jesus gives a plea here. If you got an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the church. Being Spirit-filled is the goal. And Spirit-filled people can become hard of hearing if they stop putting themselves in the place where God can keep them filled. So that's the plea. Here's the promise, and it's an interesting one. There's a promise from Jesus to all who overcome. He says, to the one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Many people don't know this, but, you know, all of us are going to die someday. The interesting thing about life is no one makes it out alive. So all of us have a natural birth and a natural death. If you go to the cemetery, you're going to see stones, and they got a date, the beginning and the end. Born, dead, natural. So there's a, unless Jesus comes and catches us up and takes us up in the rapture, all of us are going to die someday. And you're thinking, come on, pastor, it's the end of church. We're going to go to the diner. We were all excited. <laughs> and now you're talking about this. Well, death isn't the thing that we should fear the most. It's the second death. And the Bible says that the overcomer will avoid the second death. Now, what is the second death? Well, I am so glad you asked. Revelation 21, 7 through 8. If you're taking notes, write that down. If you're not writing it down, there'll be a quiz after. No, I'm just kidding. Revelation 21, 7 through 8. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars will have their place in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You see, for the person who rejects Jesus Christ, they will not only die once a natural death, but the Bible talks about the grave giving up the dead and they'll be brought up at the end of everything to sit before the white throne and to be judged. And the books of life will be opened up. And if your name isn't in there, that means you rejected Jesus Christ. And you say, well, why does it boil all down to Jesus Christ? Because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He offers us the free gift of eternal life. So for those who say, Jesus, I don't want your eternal life. I don't want your gift. I'm going to make another way. I'm going to go my way. I believe in another way. There's only one way. And those who reject God's free gift of eternal life will not only face the natural death, but the second death, being separated from God for eternity. Now, the horrible thing about the lake of fire is that none of us should go there because Jesus died so we didn't have to. The horrible thing about the lake of fire is that it was designed to punish Satan and his demons that rebelled against God, but men were never supposed to go there. But men chose to go there and still choose to go there because they reject God's free gift of grace. A plea and a promise. Look, if you serve me, if you love me, if you lay your life down for me, the second death is not going to hurt you. You and I don't have to fear death at all. 
oh, death, where is thy victory? Where is thy sting? Amen. There's no sting anymore. Jesus took the sting out of it for us who believe in him. Amen. My prayer is that no one would have to face the second death, that no one would reject Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads today. Maybe you're here and you're saying, Pastor, I've never heard anything like this before. I've, I've been in church. I've been to religious services, but I never got taught the Bible. Well, the Bible clearly says if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, we would be saved. And he made it so simple. All we have to do is acknowledge he's the Savior, acknowledge that we're sinners, and choose him to be our Lord and Savior. If we'll do that, he'll forgive us of our sin. He'll write our names in the Lamb's book of life. We will not face the second death. Our eternity will be settled. He said, that sounds too good to be true. Oh, it's not. It is true, and it is good, and it's a free gift of grace that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. If you're here today and you want to be forgiven of your sin, if you want to make Jesus your Savior and you want your eternity settled, I simply want you to slip up your hand and say, I choose to make Jesus my Lord and Savior today. How many people today would say, I want to do that? God bless you, young man. God bless you. Ushers, if you see hands going up, put a pack. Keep your hand up. Uh, there, are, there are hands going up. God bless you. Father, this morning... I'm praying, this is the most important part of our service. This will change the trajectory of our lives. If you raised your hand today, let's pray a prayer together. Say, Lord Jesus, I recognize you're the Savior. I recognize you died for my sins, and I confess that I'm a sinner. I repent of my sin, and I confess that you rose again. I receive you as my Lord. From this moment forward, I belong to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now listen to me. If you prayed that prayer right now for the first time and you meant it with all your heart, God has written your name in the Lamb's book of life and your eternity is secure. Listen, it's not about works. It's not about being religious. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. So this, from this moment forward, begin to develop your relationship with him. Read the Bible. Begin to pray. Come to a church that teaches the word. Forget about religion and develop your relationship with Jesus Christ. You'll never be sorry for the relationship you develop with Jesus Christ because it pays eternal dividends. Amen. Welcome to the family of God this morning. Amen.